Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. Um, look at, uh, well, you, I don't know where to tell you to turn quite yet, because we're going to look at all the epistles this morning, okay? <laughs> I'm kidding you. Come on, lighten up, man. Oh, man. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. We've been taking a 30,000-foot view, and Jesus is the hero of history. There's no question that the Word of God is about the Lord Jesus Christ in so many ways and the salvation that God provides, the glory of God. And we've looked at the Old Testament, come into the New Testament, took a, a real, <laughs> really brief view through the Gospels. Jesus is no ordinary man. And you can see that in many different ways. The book of Acts and all the missionary journeys that Paul went on and the different things that were taking place as we transition from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. And when we get to the, when we get to, uh, the epistles... Uh, these are letters written specifically to believers under the new covenant, and they are obviously essential for each and every one of us. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture, all scripture, and he's talking about all scripture. He's not just talking about the New Testament, he's talking about the Old Testament as well. All scripture is inspired by God. It is breathed by him. It's inspired by him. It's from him. What's it useful for? What's it profitable for? It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. I don't care where you want to go in the Word of God, and it doesn't matter whether you're in the Psalms or Proverbs, whether you're in Genesis, you're even in Leviticus, or maybe you're in Numbers. Maybe you're in the, in the New Testament and you go to the eschatology aspect of things and you, you begin to study Revelation and you go through all the epistles or you go through the Gospels, Synoptic or John's Gospel. It doesn't matter where you go. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's from the Lord. It's His Word. There's a right way to handle it and a wrong way to handle it, as Paul tells Timothy. We don't want to be workmen that are ashamed. We want to accurately handle the Word of truth. Because it's his word. When we talk about this particular verse, just as a framing of the epistles and kind of how we view this, Spiros kind of comments on this. Spiros Odiades, I don't know if you have his dictionary or not, or you have access to his dictionary. I would encourage you to do that. You don't have to know the Greek language in order to read his dictionary, okay? It's, it's tremendous we used to laugh and still do. He's with the Lord now, so I know he can take it. But we knew a little Greek, and his name was Spiros. I mean, he was about that tall, if you ever saw him. Man, when he began to speak, oh, glory. I mean, just the word of God flowed through him. Just amazing, his understanding and his knowledge of the word. And to me, more than that was his life yielded to Christ. But that's another story. He says... There's a particular word, and I believe it's the word profitable. I just kind of excerpt out this statement, used only in 2 Timothy 3.16, as one of the four benefits of the word of God. There's four things that are given here. These effects are not isolated, but are interdependent and set forth an entire process of sanctification. In other words, when you read this verse, you see God's working for us in the midst of our Christian lives. The word of God is inspired by the Lord, by God, Scripture is his. What's it useful for? What's the profit of it? It's for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The idea of teaching here is to present the doctrine or the truth, the authoritative reality of God's word. 
when we look at what God's word has to say, we are getting what God thinks. And it ought to change us and the way we think. When we look at God's word, this is no ordinary word. This is God's word. It's living and active. It cuts right through all of our motives and intentions. It's transformative. It's able to renew our minds. When we begin to look at the word of God and understand that the word of God is God's word, and we begin to understand this fourfold presentation of how a believer grows in Christ, the word of God is essential in this. It's useful. It's profitable for teaching. It is his doctrine. Doctrine is just simply what we believe and how we live it out. What do you really believe as seen in your activity? Do you really believe that giving is important? I can pick on that one, right? Do you really think that God demands us to give? Because if you really believe that, what are you going to do? You're going to give. If you're not giving, guess what? You probably don't really believe that that's what the Lord wants you to do. Do you think evangelism is important? See, if, if evangelism is important, if we really believe that that's what God wants us to be a part, to make disciples, to bring them to the cross, to be ready to give an account for the hope that's within us, if we really believe that's what the word of God teaches, guess what? We're going to yield to him and we're going to follow him in what it is that he wants for us. We're going to have the activity of it. Doctrine is just simply what do we believe and how is it being seen in the way we live our lives? Secondly, it's not only for teaching the doctrine, the truth of God's word, but it's also for reproof. The word reproof literally has the idea of ethical persuasiveness. It convinces us of error in our lives, wrong thinking. We're headed this way. Have you ever gotten one of those garments? Are those things messed up or what? I mean, I love the, what is it, the Allstate commercials? They're hilarious. That guy that's driving along and he says, turn right now, turn right now. And he's flicking and he's going and he goes right into like a whole construction area and just crashes. Have you ever used one of those things in traffic, right? (laughs) Turn left and you got like 30 yards to figure out how to cut across five lanes of traffic in order to get off the exit that it's telling you to get off. And then it has the gall to tell you to recalibrate. Right? Make a U-turn at the next thing. Recalibrate, recalibrate. And you're going, you recalibrate, you stupid thing. And before long, you're arguing with a computer. It's ridiculous. I heard of one lady that actually followed the directions right into a pond. I'm serious. I'm not making it up. It it only happened like a month or so ago. It was on on the news in the morning. It was hysterical. God bless her. I'd love to have been the claims adjuster. Say what? Do what? Wow, that's a soapbox. Reproof. You're going the wrong way. What's the truth of the word of God? Why are you going that way? Why are you doing that? See, it's one thing to tell somebody that they're wrong in the way that they're going. But the next word, God doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't just say, oh, no, that's not, that's not right. That's not the way you want to go. What does he do? He corrects us. He helps us get back on the right way. So the word of God teaches us God's thoughts, God's word, God's truth. 
He begins to correct us when it becomes wrong in our thinking in terms of why are we doing what we're doing? Why are we off course? But he also corrects us in terms of getting us back on course. And he doesn't just leave us there. He trains us in righteousness. That word training literally has the idea like of a a little child where we're constantly having to help them understand how to live life. He's constantly working in our lives in order to mature us, in order to grow us. What a beautiful picture of the Christian life. Sanctification is just a a fancy word for becoming what God has already declared us to be. It's the experiencing of God in the midst of life and becoming more and more like him in our thoughts and in our attitudes. Let me give you a snapshot of the epistles. There's 21 of them. The word epistle literally has the idea of a short letter. And some of you think Romans is not short. To sit down and read through that thing in one moment, just die. You know, you die. It's short letters. That's what the word epistle means. It has a specific purpose. Paul wrote 13 of them. Hebrews, we're not sure about. It was to the Jewish believers. Peter wrote two of them. James, one. John wrote three. And Jude wrote one. 17 are written to the believers within a church or area of churches. In other words, they sent the letter to a particular space, place, a city, and then all the other churches of that area were also to read that letter. It was written to the believers. And catch that. It is not written to unbelievers. The epistles are written to us, to believers, to people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Three of them are to specific individuals, First and Second Timothy. They're written to Timothy or Titus. Paul's writing to them. They're called the pastoral epistles because these are pastors, and he's writing to them about problems in the church and how to deal with them. How do you deal with unruly people? How do you deal with believers that have gotten off course? What should you do in the midst of certain circumstances? And what should your focus be as you serve and as you pastor? Hebrews is written specifically to Jewish believers who are undergoing persecution. There are several key questions, and there are many, and I just consolidated it for, for the sake of time. We could, we could spend a long time on this. We'd be like Paul, and y'all would fall asleep in the middle of the night, and I'd be still going, and then we'd be worried about you dropping out of a window somewhere, right? For the sake of time, there are several key questions. You, you always have to ask when you're starting to look at the epistles. Who wrote the letter? Who wrote the letter? Who's the letter written to? Why was the letter written? And there's a purpose behind it. And there's all kinds of examples of this. Let me just give you several snapshots. First of all, the the book of Romans, right? Why did did Paul write the, the letter to the Roman believers? He had never met them. He had never been with them. And so he knew that, and he wanted to get there. He he intended to go and visit them. He didn't get there the way that he thought that he was going to get there. He ended up being in Rome in chains. That wasn't his plan. But why did he write the letter to the Romans? Well, he had never met them, and so he wanted to give them the whole counsel of God. He wanted to give them a picture of salvation from justification all the way to glorification with sanctification in the midst. And that's simply the idea of becoming saved, walking as a believer, and what we're hoping for, what we're looking for, what we're looking forward to. So it becomes perhaps the greatest doctrinal letter in the New Testament on the fullness 
of our salvation in Christ. And he wrote to them, he says, I can't wait to get to you, to declare to you, to preach to you the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's writing to believers, folks. The gospel's for us. Clearly, it's for the lost. It's the good news. But the gospel is a larger word than just simply the good news in terms of coming to know Christ. The gospel is a broader picture in the sense of how do we walk? What has God declared about who he is, who we are? How do we walk with him? And so Paul wanted to make sure that before he even arrived on the scene, he had written this letter to them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so they would have an understanding of the fullness of salvation. Or Corinthians, Paul writing to the Corinthians. Why? Because he's correcting their carnality. He's correcting their divisions, their wrong understanding and emphasis on spiritual gifts and, and what it means to be spiritually mature. All this, all this wrong emphasis within the Corinthian church. And he writes to them in order to correct them, to admonish them. To say, well, you're on the wrong track, folks. What are you doing? Get back over here. I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to you under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Here's how you should be living because of who you are in Christ. Or the Thessalonians, they were scared to death that they had missed out on the resurrection. And so Paul writes to them to encourage them of the hope that we have. You haven't missed out on the resurrection. The dead in Christ are going to arise first. And then we who remain are going to be caught up in the air as a result of Christ returning. Or the Galatians and their desire to be perfected by the flesh. Their wrong understanding concerning law and grace. They had been saved. They recognized Jesus Christ as publicly portrayed as, as crucified. They understood that the law was not sufficient in order to provide salvation, forgiveness of sin. But then, becoming believers, what did they begin to do? They began to walk by the law. They placed themselves right back up under the tutor of the law, which was given in order to point to the need of Christ. And Paul writes them and says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the one thing that I want to know from you. Right? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? How did you receive the Spirit? Did you do something to get the Spirit to come upon you, to come and live in you? Did you do something in order to get saved? And now, are you being perfected by the flesh? Are you doing something in order to be perfected in Christ? There's a correction moment. There's a correction mode. There's an occasion for why he wrote. Or James writing to believers, Jewish believers who were not walking by faith and as a result were ineffective in their walk. Oh, you say you have faith. Great, even the demons say that. He's not talking about their salvation. They're saved. But as believers, they were walking in such a way where their faith was utterly ineffective. Absolutely ineffective. And he has to remind them about who they are in Christ and what God has done for them. I would put it this way, that all the epistles, all 21 of them, have as a foundational and or unifying context to them several things. Let me give you five particular things that you're going to find, and I don't care if it's the purpose or the reason why the author wrote what they wrote, there is a unifying context here in terms of these epistles. Right? Every epistle... It may have a specific occasion and it may have a specific people group that it's being written to, but there are certain foundational things that are undergirding. 
Everything that the author of that particular letter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to come out of the well of, if you want to put it that way. First of all, grace. Grace. Grace is absolutely in the fabric of every epistle. It may not be the main thing in the sense that you see it highlighted. But it's the main thing in that it is a foundation to all of the writer's thinking in terms of how to go about certain things. What should we be doing? What should we not be doing? Grace, the favor of God, God's unmerited favor, God's decision out of himself, out of the counsel of his own will with joy to interact with us at all. Anything God does for us, whether it's coming to the cross or now walking with Christ in the midst of our experience with him or the glory that we have to look forward to, everything is because of God's grace because he chose to interact with us, not because we earned it or have done anything to deserve it or could do anything to pay him back for it. Grace is in the midst of everything. It is God's transforming power, his life, Within us. Romans 5 2 says, Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. It's not just what we get into, it's what we stand in, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. We stand in the grace of God. That's how we're able to stand because it's by God's grace that He empowers us and strengthens us to continue to walk in the what he has called us to be a part of. Secondly, faith. Faith, the persuasion or the belief in Christ that he's able, no matter what I can figure out, no matter what I can try to accomplish on my own, faith is just God is able in spite of what I, from all my senses, can figure out on my own. I believe God. I believe God. Whatever you're going through, whatever circumstance you're facing, whatever it may be that you're undergoing, whether it's emotionally, whether it's in your mind, the battle that's taking place, whether it's in relationships with regard to other people or circumstance, it doesn't matter. I believe God. I believe God. That will be ingrained into every one of the epistles because we walk by faith, not by sight, which is what Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. We walk by faith, not by sight. Thirdly, love. Love. And it's not just any kind of love. It's not the mushy-gushy kind of thing that the world loves to, loves to throw at us, right? McDonald's, whatever. I love hamburgers. I mean, we can go on and on about this is God's love. Love is ingrained in every one of these epistles. And love is the fruit from him seen through our lives. God is the one who has come to take residence within our lives. And because he is love, as we yield to him, his love begins to be seen in and through us. There's no clearer verse than Galatians 5.22 on this, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? It's love. It's love. When we understand that it's not what we create, it's not what we can accomplish, and we don't get it by a plan, we don't get it by any other way than yielding to the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ living his life in and through ours, that's when love, true love, agape love, begins to be seen. 
in our midst. Every epistle is going to have this as a foundation. Fourthly, hope, hope. I love hope, don't you? The hope of the assurance of the glory of Christ, the assurance of his word in our lives, the fact that when God says something, that settles it. We can depend upon him. Amen? If we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ today, what kind of hope do we have? Wow. We're going to be with Christ forever. We're going to be with loved ones who were believers in Christ forever. We're going to have new bodies. We're never going to have to struggle with sin again. Every tear is going to be wiped from our eyes. The hope, the assurance that we have is what God's promised us. And we can depend upon it. We can live in light of that. And it ought to change the way we live. 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul in writing to Timothy says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Wow, what an awesome, awesome picture. He is our hope. It's not just some ethereal, philosophical thing. It's Christ himself. And what a beautiful picture that is. Every epistle is going to bring that out. And fifthly, but not lastly, but for our time, and this one we don't like very much. We love to talk about love and hope and faith and grace, but discipline? Oh, we don't like that too much, do we? Did, any, did anybody get spanked as a kid? I hated that. My dad would would be leaving to go somewhere and we'd have a babysitter. My mom and died when I was little, so there was a time period where we had babysitters and he, he'd be about to walk out of the door and he'd say, because he had two belts, he would say, which belt? And my brother and I'd look at each other and we always wanted the thicker one because it didn't hurt as bad. And he would always pick the thinner one because it hurt worse. <laughs> he would never beat us, folks. You need to lighten up about the spanking thing. It's ridiculous in our society. It really is. There's a wonderful place for corporal punishment, and it's called the derriere. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> I, I think half of our problems with the younger generations would be corrected if we just diligently, with love and with kindness, let them know who was in charge and that God put parents in charge, not them. Amen? Amen. I mean, that's the truth. All right, it's another soapbox. We don't like talking about discipline, God's loving correction in our lives. Over and over and over again in the epistles, you see how we're not to walk, how we should walk, and what will happen if we choose to quench or to grieve the Spirit of God in our lives. Hebrews 12, 6 puts it so clearly. He says, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges. Wow. Scourge, what a word, scourge. You know what that means? Beats the hide clean off. He doesn't just love tap, folks. If you're his son, if you're his daughter, and you are resisting the Holy Spirit and walking in a way that is not according to God's will for your life, which is your sanctification, which is conformity to his image, which is walking in his strength and his power by his grace so that his love will be seen through your life. If you are resistant to the Holy Spirit, I can assure you that if you are truly God's child, he will discipline you. 
That's a promise from God. Why? Is it because he's just out to get you? No, it's because he loves us and he knows what's best for us. And he scourges every son whom he receives. MacArthur's got a great statement on this, and there's a longer uh, message on this. He's talking about his church, Grace Church. He's talking about the whole issue of holiness within the body of Christ and the discipline that is necessary for the body of Christ. And just as an excerpt into that, he's talking about that. He says, so in those early years, at the beginning when he became the pastor of the church, from the very outset, we began to think through Matthew 18 and Acts 5 and 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, to put out the leaven that leavens the lump and put out the immoral man. In 2 Thessalonians 3, where you're told again as a church to put out someone who is disruptive of the truth or contentious. Or 1 Timothy 1, where you have even leaders that had to be put out of the church. It seemed to me there was no way around this responsibility. Folks, the Lord is concerned with the holiness of his bride, the purity of his bride. Discipline is involved in every epistle at some level. It is essential. God does not love where he sets his arms, folds his arms, steps back and says, have at it, I told you what to do, now go do it. He is intimately acquainted in our lives. He knows exactly what we need. And if we begin as his children to walk in a way that he does not want us to go, that he knows is not for our best, in our best interest, he will discipline us because he loves us. All the epistles place our deeds or our works within the context of our identity in Christ. In other words, who we are is seen in what we do, not what we do makes us who we are. Did you catch that? How many of us get into conversations where somebody immediately says, what do you do? Because they want to have an understanding of who you are. Folks, understand, cart before the horse here, who we are in Christ The activity of that flows out of who we are, flows out of our identity. What we do does not necessarily dictate who we are. And we better get that one straight. Because when we're walking with the Lord, if we're truly yielded to him and if we're truly walking according to his ways, he begins to transform us and mold us in such a way the activity is an outflow. The activity is an outflow. If the activity is not there, we better go back to the heart and we better check the heart. We better go back and find out are we rightly related with the Lord because maybe we need revival. Maybe we need correction in our own lives. God has declared us his children and there are certain rights and privileges that come with that. All of us should be walking in his righteousness. Let me show you a slide on this. Talk about uh, growth in Christ. Talk about um, growing in Christ and being transformed by the Lord and what it is that he has for us. Uh, I think it's essential to understand. Do we have that? Yeah. So salvation, all of it, when you look at justified as a done deal, that's the coming to Christ. That's the point where we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and we are eternally saved. That's a done deal. That is justification. It's just as if we had never sinned. God himself imputes Jesus' righteousness upon our lives. We are now the righteousness of God, not because of anything we've done, but rather because of what Christ has done for us, and we've received it. And so now we're on a journey. And believe me, it's not a straight line. 
Amen? It, it can be wiggle. It can go backtracking. It can go all over the place. But fundamentally, we want to see growth in Christ. And what does that look like? Well, we become babes in Christ. We need milk. We need milk. Newborns need milk, and it's okay. There's a time to need milk. There's a time to grow out of that where you go into the adolescence and you begin to understand what it is to walk with the Lord, and you're becoming somebody. You're, you're becoming a believer that is mature, and maturity is not that you've arrived. Maturity is not that you've arrived. It's not that you don't struggle with sin any longer. I used to think that. Do you? Do you? I used to think when I got to a certain age, there's certain things I wouldn't struggle with. Or I had gotten over certain things, and therefore I didn't have to worry about it anymore. Man, my flesh. No. <laughs> One day I'm going to get a glorified body, and sin won't dwell within my flesh at all because I'll have a perfect body. There's no more sin. But until that day, friend, we struggle with our flesh. Maturity, in my mind, as defined by the Lord, is simply the acknowledgement of how quickly I run to him because I know that I need him. It's not that I can do anything. It's that I know that I can and I need the Lord because he can. And then, of course, glory, glorification. That's a snapshot of our salvation. We talk about it in all kinds of fancy words, but the reality of it is it's really coming to know Christ, being saved, right, and then walking in that salvation with the hope of what God has promised to us, growing in Christ, growing in in the Lord. Let me give you three things this morning on growing in Christ. Becoming, becoming, bearing fruit and blessing others. Becoming, transformation of character. What is God's work in our lives in order to help us to become? How are we bearing fruit? What's the attitude of love not only in us that is transformational but through us? And how are we beginning to walk in that love in blessing others? The expression of love through righteous deeds. Becoming the transformation of character. Can any one of us grow in Christ apart from Christ? <laughs> that almost seems like an absurd question, isn't it? Let me ask you something. Do you think that if you get a seminary degree that you're automatically going to be mature? I promise some of the most immature believers I've ever met are people who have had seminary degrees. That's no joke. They think they know everything. Well, I wrote a paper about that, therefore I'm the expert. Nonsense. It's ridiculous. Look, folks, it takes Christ to grow us. It takes the Lord to transform us, and the whole Trinity is involved in it. First of all, the Father is involved in what we are becoming as we yield to him. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. The Father is working in such a way as to conform us to the Son's image. Wow. How does that do? What class are we going to take in order to do that? You know, what kind of meeting are we going to have in order to make sure that that takes place? No, that takes the Word of God. That takes the Spirit of God using the Word of God in order to impress the heart of the believer, in order to yield to the Lord and to walk by faith. And as we begin to walk by faith and we're persuaded that this is a work that only God himself can accomplish, then he begins to work in us in order to transform us, to conform us to his very image. Romans 12, 2, he says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be pressed into the mold of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
so that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This doesn't happen apart from our yielding to the Lord. We are living sacrifices and we acknowledge because of all that God has done for us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Lord is the one who's able to cause this to happen as we yield to him, as we surrender to him. Well, the word of God is obviously essential in this. The Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. The word of God, the logos, the written word is his word. That's why it's a living word. And there is no growth within the Christian life apart from the word of God. Zip. Nothing. We don't even know how to walk by faith apart from the word of God. If you're not in the word of God, and if you're not allowing the word of God to renew you, if you're not being taught the word of God by the Holy Spirit because you're availing yourself to the Lord through his word, you have no idea how to walk by faith. You may think you do, but you don't. Because that's what God's word says. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing is what? By the word of Christ. Philippians 3.20 In 21, he says, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Who's the he? It's Christ, the living word. In 1 Peter 2, 2, he says, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. And by the way, that's a command. That's not just a hope for somebody. Peter is writing to these believers and he's commanding them long for the pure milk of the word. Why? So that by it, by what? The word of God, you may grow in respect to your salvation. This is not a growth that we have through the experiences of life. God may use the experiences of life as we filter through them through the truth of the word of God in order to help us grow. But it is not simply by the experiences of life that we grow. Only in Christ can this take place, folks. Only through God's work in and through our lives. How's the spirit of God involved? Galatians 3, 2 through 3 says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. I quoted this earlier. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Have you lost your brains? (laughs) That's That's what foolish means. Have you set your brain to the side? Paul didn't mince words. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? My goodness. It is the Spirit of God. That begins to transform us. And Paul wrote this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's called the Lord. Why? Because he is the Lord. (laughs) That's beautiful. God is the one that transforms us, folks. The Father is working in order to conform us to the image of his Son. The Son is working in order to renew our minds and transform us. And the Holy Spirit is taking the word of God in order to make sure that we understand God's thoughts and we're able to apply them into life and all the details of it. And it is through him and him alone that we are able to mature, to grow. Look at the confession slide for a moment. What what does every believer go through? What does every believer go through? i got to look this way. Every believer goes through this. And if you say you don't, then John says you're a liar. Right? If you say you have no sin, 
We lie and the truth is not in us. What is he saying? He's not saying you're not a believer. He's saying that you're not walking in the truth of what God has revealed as a believer. He says, what, what do we talk about? We, talk, we use all kinds of words for this. Yielded to Christ, walking by faith. We walk by the Spirit of God. We're walking in obedience. We call it surrender. Ultimately, it is our attitude towards the Lord. You first, Lord. You first. Whatever you say, I'm willing to follow. I know that I don't have the strength in and of myself, but I know that you live in me in order to accomplish this through me. You first. And what happens? Believers get tempted, right? Now, don't say no and don't freeze on me. You can say no, and you can shake your head no. Or excuse me, yes. <laughs> yes, we all get tempted, don't we? There are things outside of us that are attractive to our flesh. They're attractive to our flesh. It could be anything. We don't got to go through the trash can, but what happens when our flesh is attracted it brings forth sin, and sin brings forth death. And for the believer, that is not a loss of salvation in the sense of saved from hell. That is a loss of fellowship. What do we have to do to get back in fellowship with the Lord? We have to confess. We agree with God that what it is that he's revealing to us about our activity and our attitudes was sinful. It's not just wrong. It's not just my personality. It's not just then you can fill in the blank. It's sin. And Lord, I agree with you on it. Would you cleanse me of it? And what does he do? He restores me back into fellowship with himself. Folks, when we talk about maturing in Christ, when we talk about what every believer goes through and the work that God is doing in all of us as we yield to him, if we're his children and we get off track, well, he's going to discipline us and he's going to bring us back because he loves us. And I would suggest this, even to the point of taking us home if necessary. We see that uh, in scripture. We see that in Ananias and Sapphira. We see that uh, to many of the believers who were sleeping because they were uh, unworthily taking of the Lord's Supper. They were quenching and grieving the Spirit of God. They refused to listen to what the, the Word of God had to say to them, what the Word of God was revealing to them. And as a result, the Lord said, enough, I'm taking you home. When we talk about confession, talk about growing in Christ, folks, it's essential. Two more thoughts briefly, because I do know the time. Bearing fruit, there's an attitude of love. What happens when we begin to mature and grow in Christ? Romans chapter 5, and I won't take the time to read the whole passage, but verses 1 through 5, at the very end in verse 5, he says, Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Through the Holy Spirit. What happens? God comes to take up residence within our hearts. And he pours out his love into us. Think about that. We get to experience God's love. And we get to be transformed by God's love. And as a result, we begin to walk in God's love. Well, the love of God begins to build us up. In Ephesians chapter 4. He speaks of it this way in terms of the body of Christ causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. When every believer is walking yielded and surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ, you begin to walk in what God's will for your life is and you begin to serve and you begin to place the interests of others over your own. And in love, we begin to take the needs and we begin to say your needs are more important than my needs. And as a result of that, we begin to walk in love for one another. And what happens? The body of Christ is built up. It is strengthened. And it becomes a testimony to the world. 
The love of God binds us together. In Colossians 3.14, beyond all these things, put on love. And what does love do? It is the perfect bond of unity. Wow. And again, it doesn't mean that we all agree on the color of the carpet. But it means that we agree fundamentally with the truth of God's revelation concerning his son and the way that we're to walk with him and the faith and the hope and the love and all the different attributes. Blessing others, what happens as a result? The expression of love through righteous deeds. In 2 Thessalonians 1.3, he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged. I love that. Greatly enlarged. You started out with a little bit of faith, but it's being enlarged. It's growing. And the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Wow, do you see the relationship? As we yield to the Lord and as we're more and more persuaded about God and who he is and what he's able to do, then God who's poured out his love within us, God who begins to transform us by his love, then the love towards one another begins to grow ever greater. Or Titus 3.14, lastly, the fruitful deeds that come out of this. He says, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so they will not be, what, unfruitful. What what does the Lord desire to do? He, He desires to grow us. He desires in order for us to walk with him by faith and that the love of Christ has been poured out into us and that God's love is transforming us and we are maturing in Christ and as a result, others become more important than ourselves. Our agendas pale in comparison to the needs of other people and as a result, the body of Christ is built up in love. The Lord is glorified, and we begin to walk in the works that God has for us, that he planned for us before the foundation of the earth. What a beautiful picture. Every epistle has these things undergirding them. The question is, how are are we maturing in Christ? If you go back to that slide and you look at that slide, where are you on that kind of a path, on that journey? Folks, it's okay to be a babe in Christ. Amen. It is not okay to stay there. It's okay to be an adolescent. I've got one at home, and one is now moving on to maturity. And I'm thankful for Jonathan because he's pretty mature for an adolescent. All of us, at one point or another, we're at the adolescent stage. The question is, in our walk with the Lord, are we moving on to maturity? Or are we still floundering in all the self-identity crises we go through, all the things that hit us, all the doubts and the concerns about what God has said about us, what we're supposed to be about, how it is that God grows us, and all the different things that take place. How, How are we growing in Christ? Are we moving on to maturity? Do we recognize this world is not our home? Our citizenship is in heaven, and one day we're gonna spend there forever. And how is forever defining right now? That's the question. Is money worth it? Is power worth it? Are the self-interests that we have, is that worth it? I would suggest and encourage that in light of eternity, there's no way those things are worth it. They pale in comparison to knowing Christ and walking with him forever and ever and ever. Where are we in this process of becoming what God has declared us to be. We've been declared saints. 
How are we maturing in Christ? How are we looking forward to glory and all that God has promised us? And do we trust Him? Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.